Hello and welcome to Hero with a Thousand Potions, a gaming podcast where two 30-something gamers examine the storytelling gameplay of popular niche RPGs. It's like a book club with melodramatic, stranded on an island sequences. This is season one, and we're talking about Xenoblade Chronicles Definitive Edition. I'm Tyler. And I am Nate. And we invite you to uh, join us on this adventure. We're playing Xenoblade episode by episode. Chapter by chapter, um, we just finished chapter 12, which is the sequence of events in which just after the group fell off Galahad Fortress. Hi, Nate. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing well. I labeled this chapter uh, obligatory castaway sequence because each RPG that we have, I shouldn't say each, but I say many of the RPGs that we have fond memories of have a sequence of floating on driftwood or machinery or some broken vessel of some kind in the water. We talked about it a little bit last episode, but here we are again. Oh, you definitely called it. Yeah, I was correct. I mean, we're not on driftwood. We're on an island in this case, but it's still kind of the um, in the wilds, at least for uh, the majority of it. But I'm doing well. Um, I... Recently, within the last month, a my favorite band in the world released a new album. The band is Durr and Gray, and I went through my same process of listening to it, wondering what the hell's going on, but just sticking through and playing it four or five more times and then realizing, yeah, yeah, I like it. It's good. I'm a fan. What kind of band is this? This is a Japanese metal band, um, so they they do a lot of screaming, a lot of growling. A lot of power notes. Power chords? Well, power chords on the guitar, but like the, the kind of like harmonized power notes from the singer as well. I don't, I don't know what to call them. I'm not, I'm not a musician. So, But the thing I like about the band is their versatility and their intensity. So um, I, have a, I have a strong connection with some of the emotions and feelings they give me when listening to their music. But yeah, so... That's been enjoyable. That's kind of when I'm playing other games where I don't necessarily care about the music, I'll toss that on. And basically every song in the album is stuck in my head now. I'm glad you're enjoying that. I'll check that out too. What, what was the band called again? It's called Durr and Gray. I will send, I'll put in our Discord a link to a song that I feel has a little bit more accessibility than maybe some of their other entries. And then I'll put in a, a wacky song as well. Cool. All right. Uh, in my case, this is my last weekend before going back to work full time. I'm on FMLA, of course, from having a baby recently. And so uh, Rose and I are packing it in. Um, we went blueberry picking with our little one earlier today. It was lovely in the sunshine. And tomorrow we're going kayaking while the baby is going to be babysat by Nana, that being my mother-in-law. So let's talk about Xenoblade Chronicles, huh? Chapter properly opens with a flashback we haven't seen before, which is pretty unusual for flashbacks in this game. The flashback is young Shulk, who remembers falling into a hole after reaching out for some scrap metal. It's slow, and it's dreamlike, and the scene doesn't happen for very long. It's over in like maybe 25 seconds. I don't know where this is taking place exactly. It looked kind of like Colony 9 in the place where you meet Ryan and Shulk at the very beginning of the game. It felt like that to me, but I couldn't tell you where exactly that was happening. I must have gotten stuck with that scene playing and then me saving my game after because I don't remember any of that. So that might have been pre-break. This is important for some reason. At some point when Shulk was young, he tumbled into the earth chasing after scrap metal like it's a white rabbit in Alice in Wonderland. What happened down there? Let's assume he's on Bionis, who goes in the bowels of Bionis. I'm gonna watch it quick. Okay, sure, that's a good idea. 
I, I got it pulled up right now. Oh, you do? Okay. It's been a long time since he had this dream. Oh, an actual kid Shulk model. Where he looks like a kid. Every time we say Baby Shulk, we never mean Baby Shulk. For sure. Yeah, but he actually looks like a kid, whereas the flashback of him in the ice tower, maybe it's just the bulky clothing or something, but he looks straight up like an adult in that, in those flashbacks. But that, but that flashback, he looked like a kid. And yeah, it looks like they're trying to say something important, but really can't grasp it. What happens when people go into the bowels of, of Titans in this game? Well, Fiora got soul transferred, although the circumstances were very different. To me, there isn't enough here. Like, you know that I'm all about making wild theories and jumping the gun on certain things. There's just not a, there's not enough here for me to do any of that. Whatever happened down there produced the precondition that allowed the Monado to respond to Shulk in the way that it does. That's a good one. I like that. I don't know what that means exactly at all. Okay, I do have a mad theory then. Okay, great. Uh, there was once a, a little kid named Shulk. He was running around doing his thing. He liked being an engineer, getting scrap and everything. He fell into a hole and then Bionis cloned him, and the Bionis clone Shulk was created to wield the Monado and to take the real Shulk's place and slip him in there that nobody noticed that Bionis had a little engineer kid under his control running around. And um, I don't know why he would have to go to those lengths, but that sounds pretty anime to me. That's You don't question anime logic, you just roll with it. That there are clones, there are people replaced, there's two of somebody walking around at the same time. So that that's what I'm gonna go with on this one. It's wrong. I'm I guarantee you it's a wrong one. But I thought, hey, that's my brand. I need to throw out a wild theory. So that's it. Okay, I'm gonna throw out a wild theory too. He falls in, and I feel like the soul transfer thing can have a Bionis parallel. But I don't have any other really pieces to run on. I, we don't. We're not aware of any um, Lady Maineth surrogates that would be on the part of. Shulk in this theory. Um, and what that means is the person that's inside Shulk all along, but was not so obvious the entire time in the same way that is obvious between Lady Maneth and Fiora, is that he is the clone of Zanza. Okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm down for that. How about this? He is the clone of Dixon. Okay. Who is the clone of Zanza. Okay. I got I got another one for you here. Okay. Does the does the name Abel mean anything to you? It means a lot to me actually. Does the word does the name Faze Kim mean anything to you? Faze Kim. Yeah. So within Bionis there was like um let's say an ancient warrior guy piloting Bionis because we now know that Mechons all have a pilot, right? So inside Mechonis there's a there's a pilot somewhere in there. Uh and He's been fighting this long battle over the planet with another guy. We'll just call him Abel. He won't be named Abel, but we'll call him Abel. And they got in this big fight, and then the damage was so great that Abel had to go to sleep. But he's like, you know what? Release the pods. Put Homs out there. The, you know, while I'm asleep, they'll do repairs on Bionis, and Bionis will get back going. The ether will flow. We'll wake back up. We'll continue this fight. And eventually, you know, there's this procession of Homs made and the, this line of Shulks, right? And when Shulk fell into that hole or was called into that hole, he met his Abel equivalent and their spirits joined. And that's why he can use the Monado. How's that? Holy smokes. That's pretty good. Okay. 
feel like Dixon plugs in there somewhere. Sure, sure. Is, is Dixon the Groff in this analogy? Dixon the Groff. Well, Shulk's parents were murdered and then Dixon walked in, so maybe? I don't know. Yeah? We are in the cattails here, but we can't help ourselves because this chapter of the video game is kind of mellow. Plus, they gave us a scene that had absolutely no significance or meaning to us, so we're going to create that meaning where we see fit. As I talked about before, we are on a beach. The heroes wake up wondering where the heck they are, kind of looking around. You can grasp from the scenery that we are located at what is we will come to know as the fallen arm. I guess I missed it, that part of the story where the arm fell off. It was was there was that in the intro cinematic at some point? Maybe McConnell's got its arm chopped off at some point. Maybe. Yeah. We should rewatch it. Should we rewatch it? Like live, like we're doing it now? Sure. All right, cool. We'll do it live. Let's do it live. We'll do it live! Fuck it! Oh, yep, there it is. One minute in. Okay, I'm going to one minute. You know, honestly, rewatching this, there's a lot here. Yeah, that is a decisive hit on that arm. Sheared clean off, crashing into the ocean below. Oh, and then we see the hand open, too. Yeah, okay, we definitely saw an arm fall off in the intro. Yes. So that that's where we're located. I don't know if you have any... Other observations about the scene. Like you said, Shulp wakes up. He's alone, and we don't know where our party members are. The music on the fallen arm here is still and contemplative. And I don't know about you, but my chapter began at night. And when Shulk was having these, uh, was saying these things about, you know, wondering where everybody is, and with the setting at night, it felt extra isolating and exposed to me. Yeah, mine was that day. Mm -hmm. I felt I felt extra lonely. Yeah, and we wake up on that beach alone, but he has a slight vision in his head of Fiora falling in her mech, right? But when it comes to my inevitable upcoming trial, I'm going to be chastised for not immediately rushing to Fiora's aid, but instead scouring the area for loot. Absolutely. Yeah. That's a Chrono Trigger reference for anyone out there. They chastise you at your trial for not immediately rushing to Marley's aid. Oh, right. Yeah. But also, the uh, the game eventually does indeed populate a text box telling me I must go to Fiora's aid instead of wandering off too far. So I do as such. The red column of light is coming from Fiora. Her suit, her mech suit is wrecked in the surf. Uh, he pulls her Ham's body out of the cockpit. She's unconscious, and but Shulk finds that she's still breathing. He recognizes the soul, transfer crest on her chest, tugs at it, and a red light radiates. He doesn't know that that's a soul transfer crest. I don't know that we've officially been told that that's exactly what that piece of... I don't even know what you want to call it. Adornment is. Kutrama. But we're we're smart. We know that that's the kind of source of where Maineth is being injected into Fiora. Yeah. So we get an opportunity. We know that she's, we notice that she's not moving. She's breathing, but Shulk says uh, she needs water. So we're given an opportunity to move around. As I take that opportunity to kind of look around, the design of the fallen arm is pretty amazing it's overgrown with foliage and water cascades over the edges at certain points there's probably is it a what do you call it a tributary place where rain is collecting on the top of the arm that's filtering down through its metal pores i guess yeah it's lush it's beautiful it's oceanic 
you feel, you know, we awake on a beach and we can see the ocean spread out. You can see pieces of Galahad Fortress kind of littering the beach in enormous chunks. I'm a sucker for depictions of industry being reclaimed by nature. So like when I was 12, I wrote and didn't necessarily finish, but I had like six notebooks full of Final Fantasy VII fanfic in the era depicted in the post credits ending where Red 13 looks on at a Midgar reclaimed by nature and the planet and the seas. So that message was so striking and powerful to me that whatever plans we as humans have, whatever damage we do to the world, whatever we, whatever fate we come to, we will eventually fall and the things that are eternal will remain and wash us away. So I love this kind of stuff. There's, it's in Miyazaki movies as well, uh, anime a lot. Um, I similarly enjoyed The Last of Us. I don't know if you ever played that, Tyler. I've not. It's like this game. It's like a zombie game, but not necessarily like the typical zombie outbreak plague. The zombies are caused by essentially a infection from nature itself. And it's kind of a commentary depicting the fact that this world that is like a living hell for humans is actually a return to paradise for the planet because it's decimated mankind and industry and all of the things kind of causing the planet to be put in a catastrophic state the result is is the planet just creates antibodies and starts infecting humans with them and they turn into monsters and start murdering each other so if we can't learn to coexist and respect the land we are doomed to be destroyed by it i like that message and so i don't know that that is the full message we're seeing here with the mechanis arm but i love the depiction of nature claiming industry Right, she needs water, and there's only ocean water around, but there is w fresh water nearby, there's a spring, and we can go get water from that, and he fills a thermos. Well, he, he finds a red glowing sphere floating above the water that he puts in his thermos. Right. There are crabbles here, which are the crabs, flammies, which are like the flamingos. Some of these flammies swoop in onto the beach from the ocean and land sometimes five at a time, and the effect is really real and enchanting to me. Makes me think of this game probably blowing people's minds on the Wii if they were able to achieve these effects on the Wii. We don't know. We didn't play it on Wii. The, I don't know, the casual naturalness was just very, felt very special. We could get into a discussion about Fiora and her body. She looks, to use a quote from another series, more machine than man now i may be half human but i'm all woman with all but her face displayed outside of a full metal architecture of a body i guess shulk is taking a lucky guess here that water would be something that would assist her in her new physiological state mm -hmm. he's making that call oh she needs water and it's like you don't actually know that dude uh her form is still that of a young woman though raising the question of whether her flesh is still intact and just tightly encased in this metal frame within frames within frames that is a mechon i guess um because a mechon society would not have a need for similarly sized breasts as a hom does or the liquid they produce by any means but yet here they are she's she's got metal boobs yes here we are it's now he gives her some water 
He drinks some as well, and then mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation begins. I wrote that Shulk spits in Fiora's mouth. He does not. He He's giving her the water. Like, I thought he tried to pour it into her mouth, and it didn't work. So he drinks some and passes it into her mouth, right? Oh, very clever. I guess I wondered why he drank some as well. I mean, sure, he's on an island, but... Okay, he passes her water. Her head turns. He's shocked. <laughs> he drinks it. Yeah, he's passing the water into her mouth because she can't drink it on her own. He says it's her first kiss, albeit unwarranted, not necessarily a kiss. I don't know that I've ever had a kiss where somebody just passed a full volume drink into my <laughs> mouth, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, me neither. I don't think I've had that either. Um, how brainwashed is she right now? She seems like completely back to her old self right now. Whatever happens, she seems like completely released. She's acting like herself. She's not... She's never eyes closed and in this sort of like catatonic state. She's right. So she's it seems like we've broken the broken the spell over her. Yeah, she does eventually spill the beans here on how all that works. She was there always watching. But since her death, she's felt someone else inside her. So it's all adding up to what we thought. We we've stated how not all Mechon have this effect happening to them. Mumkar is not two people. He isn't reprogrammed, he isn't, you know, of two different minds, one pre-Mechanus, one post-Mechanus, it's the same guy. Mm -hmm. We've we've talked about that in previous chapters, but to catch everybody else up who hasn't heard that in a couple months, this is a completely different situation. Via the trinket on her chest, there was somebody taking over Fiora's body. She was a silent passenger, able to see everything that was happening, everything that Maineth was doing, and trying to achieve using her body, but able to intervene. But apparently the two have some sort of connection where they were able to not necessarily directly speak to one another, but essentially pass emotions back and forth because Fjord does have some understanding of Mainus purposes and desires. Maybe not in the she is going to do this respect, but just she wants to help. She wants to change things. At least that's what I was getting from the exposition. Is that what you took from it? Yeah, they're developing a symbiotic relationship with one another. According to Fiora, she says that she, Lady Maynith, um, defended the party in the face suit at Galahad Fortress. And so that's proof to her that, hey, maybe we can work, work together to accomplish whatever we need to do. Um, which is pretty interesting, considering Egil probably wouldn't permit something like that if he knew the extent to which Lady Maynith would be assisting. And so there's some sort of disconnect between what Egil supposes Lady Maynith is for or supposed to do or can be applied and what's really going on for sure and shulk kind of protests he's like you know screw these people she doesn't belong in your body who cares right let's let's do our own thing you're here now that's all that matters and fiora protests a little bit she says um she's down for helping out whoever is inside her because of the fact that she protected her and shulk and seemed to have yora's best interests in mind in even though she was using her body the alternative was Fiora's death so it was kind of this thing where you know I'm gonna save you but in the meantime I have things I need to achieve 
But it's kind of this sense that once those ends are achieved, that Fiora would be alive after that and released, right? I, feel, I felt like I got something like that out of it. That was what Fiora was arguing, that, that we should help her so that they're kind of freed from this obligation. Yeah, I don't know how, about obligation fulfillment. I have a feeling that Lady Manus probably wants her own body. Well, we don't know if Lady Manus' body even exists anymore. Maybe she was somebody that was killed, put in a, what do you want to call it, <laughs> put in an iPhone and then slapped on somebody's chest. Or maybe her body was turned into a frame. Okay. Which is quite the inception. It's like- Frames within frames. Like you take out your soul and then you turn the parts of your corporeal human form into a car that you drive in a different body. We joked about how Egil just sits around tending to his random chores of the day in full Mechon forms. He's a guy within a frame. That's kind of what all Mechon are because you've got a Homs. Well, not all Mechon, but like the uh, the converted ones in like Cars case, you've got a Homs sitting inside of a metal body that is sitting inside of a larger metal body. So I guess she kind of dusts herself up and they decide that they're going to go look for the others. Perhaps they're somewhere else on the island, somewhere they're not, and Fiora joins the party. I menu up and I check to see what level she is because I've been hurt by Earthbound Beginnings and she's level 57, the same as Shulk, thank fucking God. I remember those moments of getting a new character in Final Fantasy Tactics and being like, yeah, I got Cloud, this is so great. Oh my God, he's level fucking one. <laughs> he has no abilities. This is like the end of the game. So cool in concept. Not cool in practice. Give me some levels, Final Fantasy Tactics. Give me some freebies. Give me a couple free abilities at the start. It, it'll be okay. Just build them Squire and just max Squire right away. Especially that Accelerate skill where you can always earn extra JP, mm -hmm. even if you can't do anything else on a turn. And then get to just smacking your friends for an hour. I check her equipment. Her melee weapons are called Mechanist Swords, weapons given to Fiora by Egil. And she wears Aether Armors, which according to the tooltip are made by fusing Homs tissue with Mechanist parts, not Mechon parts, Mechanist parts. Mechanist parts. By the end of this chapter, we're going to have to like come up with our own flowchart or delineation guide of what type of beings exist on Mechanist because uh, I'm about to get properly confused here, but we'll save that for later. I've got a bit of a flowchart that we can go over uh, a little bit later. Okay, great. Right. So they journey into the fallen Mechanist arm, back into the familiar halls of metal. Yes. We walk through an overgrown metal bunker and appear on the other side, and that's as far as Fiora can go. Fiora needs to rest on account of getting used to her new body. No firewood this time, huh? Well, they picked the worst fucking places to sleep. This time we're up against a metal wall. What is the matter with these people? I have a, I have a bullet point as well. It says, I'm glad that A, Shulk did not make a campfire. B, someone is actually resting in this scene. And C, no Monado exposition. Wait. The Monado's light is flat. Shut up, Monado. Okay, good. But Shulk talking to himself out loud wakes up Fiora, and I wonder, is there some sort of creative slash narrative no-no in having people deliver their thoughts via an echoing voice and non-moving mouth? Because nobody ever does it. Everyone is always talking out loud. And it's not just this game. It's like literally everything. And it's like, why are people saying these things out loud? Like there's series where like they're sneaking through a base or they're like trying to hide somewhere and a character will still audibly out loud say like, oh, that was close. And it's like, shut the fuck up. <laughs> just think it. Regardless, Shulk woke Fiora up by talking to himself out loud. The scene is a yawn fest. 
Kinda, yeah. Um, Fiora again would like some more water, and uh, Shulk insists she eats again, not knowing anything about Mechon physiology. Uh, he's kind of just hip firing general health tips here. Right. Fiora does inform him then that that's not how it works for Mechons. They only run on water, no food. No mention of Mechon Dew by Honest Blast either. I'm gonna recur Damn. that joke every week because every week. I also have a Mountain Dew Baja Blast sitting next to me as we record. Delicious nectar of the gods. I may have mixed in a little bit of um, vodka with it. Mm. I'm, I'm trying to remember the name of the vodka. It's a vodka that most people would consider trash, and if you brought it with you somewhere, they'd be like, like somebody give you that look of like, yeah, I stopped drinking that when I was 23, and it's like, yeah, well, guess what? I'm 35, and I drink whatever the fuck I want because I'm not trying to prove anything to anyone. It tastes good, and I get a buzz. Outstanding. Outstanding. Fiora is kind of in that place of feeling like I'm something completely different now. How could you love me? I, you know, Fiora, you knew is dead. Just move on. What are you going to do? What, you going to have sex with a robot, Shulk? Come on. You know what? And, and Shulk says, yeah, I'm down. Don't worry about it. This whole game is about the juxtapositions of mechanical and, bi- and bionicle. Bionicle. Bi- bionic. <laughs> Lego. Bionicle. Yeah, Lego. Dude, hey, we so my friends and I used to do these things called PowerPoint power hours and we drink we drink for an hour and then we would do like five to ten minute PowerPoint presentations on whatever and it was random. And one of the themes one night was video games and TV and movies. And this one dude came in and did a comprehensive review of Bionicle lore. <laughs> in 10 minutes and it had some of the craziest twists you'd ever hear and some of them are kind of kind of giant robot kind of xenoblady in retrospect oh wow i never knew that that lego lore went that deep tyler then mechons drop in from the ceiling shulk engages with a depowered monado and then he hears alvis's voice in his head and it says the monado bends to your will come on monado don't let me down the Monado bends to your will. And he thinks, or maybe speaks aloud to himself, this time I will protect Fiora. And it activates, and this is easy shit. It worked, but his head hurts. Whatever he did to the Monado hurt extra bad this time. This harm that is done to Shulk kind of resonates to me like Dunbin's harm done unto himself by powering the Monado in the one of the original cutscenes of the game. You're talking where Dunbin's arm got damaged? Yes. I don't know just yet because we didn't see any like physical body aches from Shulk. We just saw this like mental like, you know, maybe maybe he's doing too much altering of reality, which I'm not seeing a whole lot of reality altering here. I come from a comic book background where if you tell me somebody alters reality, they just like will think the thought and poop out two kids. So, you know, that's my reality while altering. I don't know if this series takes it a little bit differently. So we finish the fight, the whole arc of the Monado kind of screwing up and Shulk fixing it and everything, even though there's a little bit of tension there. To me, it's a little short-lived. I, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to take away from that, genuinely. I wasn't even really aware that there was anything wrong with the Monado until he started saying something about it, and now it's fine again. Um, <clears throat> genuinely, the Monado has proven to be the Deus Ex screwdriver, if you will. I don't know if you know that reference. Deus Ex screwdriver. Uh, in the Doctor Who series. Doctor Who Doctor oh, Who has sure. a screwdriver, and it's generally this tool that just does whatever you want it to do. So it's kind of a Deus Ex. 
Um, if people aren't familiar with that term, Deus Ex Machina, it means the god on the machine. And in old Greek, Roman, classic plays, they would always have these tragedies and these deep, complex stories of characters betraying one another and dying and heart-wrenching scenes. But you had to always leave the, the crowd with a, a sense of hope at the end. No matter how dark your story was, you weren't allowed to end it that way. So they would have a god show up and say... I have seen your plight and I will fix everything. And so the God shows up and makes everything better, resurrects any people that were dead or stops the bad guys from evading or whatever. And he would be lowered down on a pulley, a bronze sculpture of sorts or whatever design they chose for God at that time. He'd be lowered down on a pulley with a machine holding him up. And he was called the God on the machine. The thing that just shows up mm -hmm. at the end to fix all your problems. So um, that's the Monado for me in this game is whatever problem you encounter, just wish harder into the Monado and uh, it will be fixed. I kind of just expect that even if the Monado is sputtering out or having its problems that by the end of the chapter, it's going to resolve itself. So after that battle, we cut to Charlotte and Ryan. They're on another beach on the Fallen Hand uh, and they don't know where the others are either. Ryan waxes on protecting Shulk, and, but he admits that Shulk is a pretty damn powerful now. And he makes this funny analogy about Shulk being as innocent as a little bunny. I promised Fiora I'd look after Shulk. You promised to protect the guy who protects you. Am I missing something? In the old days, Shulk was kind of frail. You know, like a little bunny that gets bossed around by the other colony animals. Ryan feels like a third wheel lately, but hey, it's no biggie. Let's go find Shulk. After all, he may need us. I wrote, Beauty and the Bozo. Ryan's depressed for being a bad tank. <laughs> or at least so he thinks, because... It's so much more succinct. For me, he's a pretty awesome tank, but he, uh, story-wise, is not feeling it. So, Charla shares that it's it's alright. She it, He is there for Shulk, just maybe not in the same way as he was a year ago or two years ago. Who knows? Who knows how the hell long we've been out here? Um, it's a little melodramatic for me, a little forced drama, but Charlotte does drop one little tidbit in here. The Mechon were after Colony 6 for the Ether Beneath. I don't know, did we officially hear that before? It, it was the perfect staging ground because they could assault the rest of Bionis from Colony 6 due to the Ether Reserves there. So we, due to the last chapter, we know that Mechon, Mechonis, all of it runs on ether. But that gives me the, pre the impression that they're like a cheap electric car. They have a limited range and capability when away from home. And they need to have a nearby stockpile. Because to go on an expedition away from Mechonis, do battle take over multiple colonies, they would need an external source as well. They wouldn't have enough to wage a whole war without some refuels. In RTS, you got to build your base next to the resources. Exactly. You got to find it out, procure weapons and resources on site. Get those drones in the crystals. Get those peons in the gold mine. Me not that kind of orc. We still don't know why Colony 6 is an ether mine, though, because the Mechon were living there. So... You know, we again, we had that one guy that was all bent out of shape about us building a house. Who built the drill? <laughs> what kind of prayers did he have to say? Ryan drops a flirt at the end of the scene. Back there, were you talking about that guy Gado? Not just about him. Why do you ask? Oh, nothing. Just 
you know, seems like tough competition for a guy like me. I'm back on Team Charline. Shoreline? Shoreline. Or is it Rayla? Ray, Ry, Ryla? Raylo? Oh my god, Raylo. We don't talk about Raylo. That's a Star Wars reference. Ilo and Ray. Ryan is tending to the flame of the ship between Ryan and Charla. We felt a connection, but we've never officially seen it until this quote here. Gadol was her fiance, right? Yes. So the competition for the position of fiance is officially on. Not competition for position of good war buddy or uh, close friend that I can text anytime I'm having a problem. It's competition for the role of fiance. The only reason I'm excited about this is because we pegged this one real fast, real early in our uh, podcast series here. Oh, yes, of course. So they run off to look around another part of the island and we navigate what I just call the power pipe ruins and a minute later we hear the sounds of battle and we catch up to Shulk. Ryan reacquaints with Fiora and we have some sit down and talk time and I'm screaming to myself in my brain please can we play this game. During the sit down and talk time Shulk says if only we could find Dunvin confirmed that Shulk doesn't give a shit about Melia anymore. Shulk, we are not done here yet. Or Riki, for that matter. But I think about how, damn, he hoodwinked Melia on this quest of revenge, rescue my ex, etc. And now he doesn't even mention hope for finding her on the wreckage <laughs> that they have all been stranded on. I don't understand my note here. I see, I wrote, want to go see my brother cry? Yeah, I wouldn't miss it, says Ryan. Oh, I can help you here with this one. Bail me out. Fiora says that Dunman does cry when no one is looking. That's it. And we... We, we have official confirmation here, Tyler, that Dunbin sads. It's all a ruse. What else are you hiding, Dunboy? You can't go around the world preaching a message of no sad when you're hella sad, my guy. No matter how painful, no matter how hard, it's nothing to be sad about. I decided that there and then. You've got to feel your feelings. He tells everybody else he's not sad. I'm not going to cry. I'm not sad. But here he is crying when nobody's looking there's some in these conversations just in general like weird moments between ryan and fiora we just got done with ryan flirting pretty openly with charla and now with charla sitting right there um when ryan first sees fiora the game does a camera shot from his position panning from her metal breasts down to her metal thigh gapped crotch region leaving a big dopey smile on his face Yes. Later, Ryan offers to carry her. She says she's heavier now. He says he's been pumping his guns. I've been pumping my guns. <laughs> the camera lingers, rotating around his body. Fiora enthusiastically says, I can see. This was their dynamic back in Colony 9. I can now totally understand why Dunbin pulled Shulk aside in Alchemoth and pleaded with him to please be with Fiora so that... Himbo Dumbo wouldn't try anything because they are just laying it on right now, in my opinion. He's aping the screen an awful lot. I had a friend like that back home. Oh, um, yes. Good friend. Great guy. I think. I don't know anymore. It's been a while, but uh, his name was Tim. Tim, if you're listening, shout out to Tim. But um, in all of these social situations, he was just so charismatic and he wasn't really into himself. He just had a way of always putting his best foot forward and externally 
you're you'd think like oh wow he's just being so flirtatious with all these women and they would all be melting for it they'd all be dying like oh my god tim he's so great i love him he's amazing but then like at the end of an evening or whatever you know we'd just be sitting around chatting and i'd be like what was going on there dude and he'd be like what huh it's like was something going on between you and blah blah blah. he's like what was i flirty what huh like yeah yeah i'm like i'm pretty sure she's gonna like call you or something after this and sure enough this girl would be completely smitten and thought that she was everything to him (laughs) and he had absolutely no clue at the end of a day with the three or four women he had supposedly flirted with that he was flirting with them it's just the way he was and so i'm seeing a little bit of that here with ryan but I know that the the flirt with Sharla was intentional. Maybe the flirting with um, Fiora, not so much. But I'm still going to dock him points for it. We all group up, and my notes for this section are, Let's go! Because <laughs> I'm anxious to play this game, and I game over in the next few minutes to an Antol Elite because I don't know how to combo with this new party setup. I benched Fiora right away and went back to the tried and true Shulk, Charlotte, Ryan setup. I definitely should have. And I didn't unequip, or I should say, switch out my equipment from the Mechanus-focused weapons from the previous chapter. I just thought I'd just crush through it, and I didn't. The Antol Elite killed me. While I'm exploring, I keep running into visions of Dunbin receiving items for other people. So um, he's apparently processing his grief via side quests, <laughs> but... Um, this confirms Dunbin survived before we actually know if Dunbin survived or not because Shulk is receiving visions of him alive. Mm-hmm. We finally get outside and are staring at a big hand and uh, some weird figures approach the group. And once again, we are not allowed to play the game. Yes, yeah, starting to feel like triangle strategy, folks. We cut to the final three. We get Ricky, Dunbin, and Melia. Um, They're all resting on yet another beach. And hey, you know what? There's a campfire, a campfire scene. Ricky fought a fish and brought it to the land to eat. And Dunbin and Ricky share a tender moment. Uh, Ricky says Shulk and Fiora are the perfect match, but Fiora is something else now. Or maybe Dunbin says that. I don't have that quote properly attributed. But the next thing they said was talking about what it's like being a daddy and Ricky says something to the effect of daddy pawns will they watch over family and although Dunbin you are not strictly a daddy pawn to Shulk and Fiora you do take the mantle of such you do assume that sort of responsibility and the two bond over it Dundun take care of them Hmm? Dundun watch over Shulk Dundun watch over Fiora that is all a daddy pawn can do Ah, Ricky make mistake Dundun not daddy pawn well, I am her older brother. But just like Daddy Pon, watching over family. Same watch over. Dundun do what he must. Ah, who would have thought it? I never imagined I'd be getting such advice from you. Ricky have big family of little Pon. Ricky raise and say goodbye to many little Pon. Ricky know some things. You can say that again. I had you all wrong. <laughs> <laughs> It is a nice moment, honestly. It is, despite all the melodrama surrounding this chapter here, I thought this was the most enjoyable emotional moment. Yep, Ricky reiterates that he's got a lot of fucking kids, and he knows a lot of stuff. And there's a development here that kind of makes me rethink Ricky a little bit, because in the beginning of the scene, Melia is pushing herself to keep adventuring, but she's got this like lazy, um, 
high Entian look on her face, like nothing matters, like all other high Entia do. Um, so <laughs> we know she's her her Hamish energies are waning, and she's dipping into that high Entia life. But Riki notices this, and so Riki starts to complain that he needs rest and he needs food and he does this. And when they finally settle, Dunbin points out that hey, Riki. You seem fine. You seem like you got a lot of energy. And you're going to go get fish, and you're going to cook it up and do all that. That's a lot for a guy who said he was tired, right? And Melia's passed out on the beach there. And so Dumbin kind of correctly points out that Riki protested and said they needed a break because he saw that Melia was the one suffering. So that kind of pulls into a lot of questions of, is Riki's whole thing of being the lovable dumbass that doesn't want to go on the adventure and doesn't want to do stuff and like is complaining, is it all a ruse so that like, he's like the sleeper, he's the Toyota Camry with the Emmy inside of it or whatever, that's just gonna destroy you. I'm giving Riki more credit now than I did in the past. He was so obnoxiously annoying, but he's growing on me. Especially those daddy pond vibes, I've, I've got Daddy Pond vibes. I've got Daddy Pond vibes. We're now feeling a bond with Riki. Fuck Alvis. Fuck Dixon. We're Team Riki. I imagine that all those kids are adventuring all across Bionis now, making their father proud, asking other Homs to kill everything for them. It's all you can ask for as a father. Riki actually goes to the length of killing everything himself, though, so that's that's like next level no pond. Walking his talk. The music playing during this kind of sounds like a children's lullaby, so it fits the daddy pond vibes as well. We do get a chance to explore just a little bit with them, right? Mm -hmm. We see a pipe and desire to go through it. What's at the other end of the pipe? Is it another cutscene? Another pipe. All parties converge at the hand, the big Mechanis hand that's severed. The layout of the island is that the Mechanis arm is sheared off like at the upper arm and then a palm is turned up and the fingers are wicked spires of metal like pointing up into the sky. But there's a habitation in the palm of this hand. And when the party converges again, they're in front of this hidden village and a greeting party comes forward to us. They are three humanoid, perhaps hybrid life forms, kind of like Fiora. They walk on two legs. Their silhouette is human-like, but they look extra mechanical, kind of like Fiora does. One of them introduces himself. This is Linada, L-I-N-A-D-A. She says, your surprise is understandable. We are the Machina, the people of Mechanis. We are the Machina, the people of Mechanis. So like I said, they're very Homs-like, but very sci-fi, metallic faces, Borg-like if you're into Star Trek, dull metal gray armor with blue, teal, and purple accents. Lenata in particular has two motorcycle helmets melted together on top of her head, perhaps protecting a metallic pom-pom hairstyle. I put she's got a butt on her head. <laughs> She says, you've probably got a lot of questions and I will be waiting for you like a good NPC in front of the building we call Junks. And we have control of our party again and we can, and this is a village that we're going to explore. The Hidden Machina Village. To me, it feels vaguely Colony 9-like where there are a couple structures floating above, or I guess I should say near water. I don't think the palm is actually floating above the water. That building that Lenata called Junks kind of takes the shape of 
some of the structures that I've seen on Colony 9, maybe the, you know, the, the big structures that were holding the cannons that had the cannons on top, there was a certain um, curvature of the architecture that reminded me of that. Sure. I took some time to speak with the locals here. Eyes, the guy outside, he thinks burying things is fun and that it is useful to forget about the bad things. Carlos, who is a Homs, says that there is a Machina that makes saving people's lives its job, and that it saved him as well. There are children Machina in this village. One of them's got a friend named Orkatix, O-R-K-A-T-I-X, whose, quote, growth algorithm is off. Um, Razkhead is the guy that saves people. There's only mm, 30 or 40 of these guys around. Some of them are patrolling in front of the in front of the village, not actually in the village itself. Very level, not, not very multi-tiered. It is a little tiered in some sections, but it is, for the most part, a very flat area. This is where I might need your flowchart on who's who in Makanis. Oh, sure. Okay. I'll, I'll say one more thing, too. This place also has an ether light, which is a teleportation waypoint. Where else in this game is there a teleportation point called ether light? I don't remember. Colony 9. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. There's also a Nopon teleporter here, the, a DLC one. There are some quests here. I gathered them up, but this chapter wraps up pretty quickly and I and it was over before I kind of expected it to be. And so I didn't do any of these quests here, but you can pick up some quests. You talk to Lenata. She explains kind of the hierarchy of how life has been formed in on Makanis. So originally there's Makanis. Makanis produced Machina in the same way Bionis produced Homs. And the Machina are the creators of the Mechons. I'm wondering if Mechonis made the Machina, then why are they bipedal humanoid animal types? This kind of suggests that there is a universalness about the human form, which is very, you know, anthrocentric of a position to kind of take, but maybe you need to have a relatable race, you know, to be able to have these sort of feelings I'm supposed to have in playing this game. I feel like if Mechonis were going to make a race of life forms, it wouldn't look exactly like an evolved ape. Well, we can dial right back to that theory time, beginning of our uh, recording here. Mm -hmm. The top of Bionis's head, there is an Abel sitting in there. He's a human. The top of Mechonis's head, there is a Cain sitting there who used to be a human, but modified himself to the point of being more machine than man again, like we said. And he is designing people in his image as well. But that that's my wild theory of why you're getting human-like creatures on both sides is that originally two human-like people were the source of everything and they had some sort of feud and then decided to duke it out in their giant robots. That makes a lot of sense. Lenata is a doctor that specializes in people that are in Fiora's situation. You know, the forced hybridization, I guess, because they're not themselves hybrids like Fiora is. She looks very Machina-like, but she isn't. Uh, Amakina herself. Mm -hmm. After analyzing Fiora, she says, just as I thought, you were transformed into a face unit and that she's experiencing a breakdown in multiple locations. Please come to my lab. The chief of this lab is waiting for you in this building right here called Junks. We enter Junks and we arrive to meet the, is it the mayor of the village? Are we going to call him mayor? Leader? Chief. It's a chief, not a mayor. Um, I'm going to call him Jabba the hunk of shit because he looks terrible. I have tubby mechanical demon like Urgot from League of Legends or Asmodan from Diablo 3 and a little like Norg from Final Fantasy VIII. Norg. Norg. Oh yeah, Norg. I forgot about Norg. Norg. I think everyone forgets about Norg. He doesn't look like the other Machina, but I guess he is a Machina. He's... 
huge, his gray metal all over his body with glowing orange accents, two tubby arms, three sight scopes, each covering parts of his cheeks. Maybe they're his eyes, but he does have other eyes. He sits in this matching throne with more glowing orange with four ornamental wings on each side, and the whole thing is supported by two or three spectacularly sci-fi wheels. He doesn't really look like the others, not at all. Does a machine get fat? That's what I wonder. Do you need more parts and you just can't find a place to fit all the parts you need and then you just you just keep expanding and that's how you become a fat machine? It takes a lot of food to have that daddy pond love and <laughs> he's a daddy. He, he is. I don't know that we got to that yet. Oh, we haven't even said his name. What's his name? Mikol. Mikol. M-I-Q-O-L. I'm going to go with Mikol. Mikol. Due to uh, Japanese and probably Mikoru. Mikoru. Just wrote that he's a giant blob of machinery. Um... But he says to us that he's been waiting a long time for them to accept his request. Who who is he talking about? I haven't gotten his emails. I don't know. I don't remember this part of the conversation. I don't think you're talking about the favor he has to ask of us. Dunman, we were told that you've been waiting for us. Mikal, that's right. I've been waiting a long time. Waiting for you to accept my request. He's massive. <laughs> I get a kick out of seeing people's faces every time. We were told that you were waiting for us. That's right. I've been waiting a long time. Waiting for you to accept my request. He's also interested in the Monado for some reason. You know, everybody has to be interested in it. You gotta check it. Am I speaking to the correct child of destiny? It's kind of like in, in uh, Breath of the Wild where everyone's checking his iPhone or... The conversation continues. Oh, yes. Is that a, is that a Samsung Galaxy 9? <laughs> yes. Oh, well, let me tell you about this monster over here. You got to help me take down. Great. Uh, so he explains that Agil is a Machina. He's not a Homs. Um, he didn't seem very Hom-like to me. I don't know how a Hom could become the, the master of all Machinas, but Mikol says that Agil is a Machina and that he is Mikol's son as well. And then we ask, well, what is the request? And the request is from Mikol to kill Agil. This Agil that you fought is one of our people. He's my son. I want you to kill Agil. And before he can say anything more, fade to black, and the chapter's over. Yeah, this is another Prison Island chapter for me. Maybe the revelations aren't as big as Prison Island, but the same feel like I had the same level of gameplay and exploration afforded to me. Maybe you could have done some of those quests and run around and handled all those before we went into the chief's location here, but that wasn't really apparent. No, that wasn't very apparent. So it was a cutscene heavy chapter with light exploration, a little combat. You could have challenged yourself on that Antola leads, mm -hmm. but as far as the grandiose open fields that we've been used to in snowy mountains and jungles and verdant plains, um, that that really wasn't here. I'm almost certain we'll have more opportunity to see more of uh, the fallen arm when we get into the next chapter, but I'm also expecting to go somewhere else. If I could guess, well, now that we're now that we have a foothold or an armhold into Mechanus, we will probably the next. Zone is going to be a very large place, a place um, as big as Gower Plains. Well, first off, I say we're going to spend the next chapter here again on the island. And once Egil learns, I mean, he can have a pretty good guess that this is where we fell. But once uh, Egil decides to, we're going to be under attack and he's going to silence his father once and for all or something stupid like that. 
and they will well we we still have one transporter that can take you to Mekanis, but it's been locked away and then the monado flickers and shines and it gets reopened up and oh my god you know uh something stupid like that but i think we're gonna spend the next chapter here and get a boss fight or an attack of some sort could be wrong we'll see but that's what I'm feeling on this one. But when we do go to that Mechanis version of Gower Plains, my guess is Volcano. Volcano. Volcano area. It's going to be metallic and molten but there are going to be some fixtures of land masses that resemble, you know, from the outside perspective, this place is going to have a purpose of like refining and processing energy into, you know, whatever and forging weapons and what are they machina people via steel and forging metal bodies and everything but to us it's gonna look more like volcanic level like a foundry or like an armory where they're building building all that yeah. stuff okay interesting for sure yeah i can get behind that just a guess though the army is gathering and is going to be issuing attack on mechanist sometime soon We'll be seeing more of Dixon and Alvis almost certainly when that takes place. I don't know where that's going to take place. Maybe we will converge with the attack next chapter. It will be a big set piece battle. I have no idea, but we'll see. Yeah, overall, this one was a little bit of a snoozer for me, but I'm excited to still get uh, get some Mechanis action going. Get some Mechanis action going. Hey, you know what? Shulk should ride his Monado like a broomstick. Yes. I recently saw the new Thor movie and... Thor went from having a hammer that he threw and then just held onto, but he had thrown it so hard that he can ride it, right? Okay. And and his new weapon, which is an axe, it has a long like tree handle on it, and so he just hops on it like a, a witch's broom and zips off. It's ridiculous looking, but they've made a point to, because the first two Thor movies did so poorly trying to be these like grandiose norse godly adventures the third and fourth movies have just been like they've leaned heavily into the space adventure kookiness okay and uh yeah so i i completely agree he should he should just ride the monado i mean if you can warp reality you should be able to triple the size of that thing give it some wings give it a cockpit and ride a monado plane right yeah that again i'm telling you that's what reality warping means to me i think he needs to it's like inception where they say you got to dream bigger and mm-hmm. the guy has a bigger gun you, shulk you need to think bigger warp bigger and make yourself a monado plane Well, I had a really great time on this island here. All the melodrama, all of the emotional reconnections and the reunions today. That was all really great. Yeah. And all the flirting, too. Flirting. Yeah, it's a regular beach blanket bingo over here. This has been a production of Hero with a Thousand Potions, recorded July 15th, 22. Email us, hero with a thousand potions at gmail.com. That's 1000 potions. And we're also on Discord, which you can find a link to in our podcast description. And we will see you next time, Daddy Pond. Daddy Pond. Daddy Pond. Daddy Pond. Daddy Pond. Yes, Daddy Pond. And to all the other Daddy Ponds out there, have a nice Daddy Pond. That is all a Daddy Pond can do. Awesome. I'm going right in here.
I feel like I need someone to like punch me up. Like stop, 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 stop. Showtime! Someone kicks you out the curtain. That's uh, alcohol. Right. Right, it is alcohol. And I do have a delicious beer in front of me. I started improv and it just got real shitty. I may be half human, but I'm all woman. Program complete, baby. Why am I doing this? You may hurt the machine, but you're just making the lady mad. Her, ni- her lips, <laughs> her nips, her lips need some lubrication. <laughs> Excuse me, I meant to say lips. <laughs> it's up to you whether you cut that or not. I'm surprised we didn't get a nosebleed. There should have been a nosebleed. Oh, sure, sure. Everybody loves to use the nosebleed. We've been re- recently watching Stranger Things, um, me and my wife. Mm-hmm. No spoilers, but it just shocks me how often any of the people that have powers in that show use their powers. Their nose just starts bleeding. And for me, I'd kind of be concerned. Like, is there eventually a point where I reach critical blood loss just via nose from how much I'm using my goddamn powers? Yeah. I... Like, shouldn't that shouldn't that head blood be staying in there? Right. We're not fixing this this issue here. We're just making it kind of like a signature of what I do. Never mind yeah. the the medical emergency you might be having exactly usually that's not a good sign guys when your nose is bleeding but that doesn't happen here it's i'm i'm pointing to tropes i like tropes stop fighting nightmare monsters hidden machina village it's in the palm of your hand that is all a daddy pawn can do 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 that is all a daddy pawn can do